Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North, Wednesday, July 20th, 2022, just after 1 p.m. Eastern daily, Daylight Time. Not Eastern Daily Time. This is what happens when I go earlier than I'm used to. I haven't had my third or fourth coffee of the day yet. We are doing a bit of an earlier show than usual for our live programs, and that's because I have to immediately when I'm done, like just rush out the door of my studio in cartoon character-like fashion, get in my car, and take a tootle down the 401 for an interview that I'm doing that I will uh, be able to share with you in the next couple of days. So it'll all be worth it then, but that's why we're doing things at a bit of a different time. But if you are not watching this live, if you're watching on a repeat or you're listening to the podcast, you're wondering why I've wasted three minutes of your time when the time of day doesn't actually matter to you. So we will move on from there. Roman Babber, the conservative leadership candidate, is going to be popping by in about 15 minutes' time to talk about his new platform, which has just been unveiled this morning. We are also going to be speaking later on in the program very briefly about Indigo Books and this little controversy that emerged online of Indigo deciding it was not going to carry my book, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world on shelf. So I actually haven't responded to this yet, so I'll give a a bit of a response in a little bit's time. But I, I want to start off by talking about the big inflation story here. And you'll have to excuse me. I, I'm just uh, moving my other computer. There we go. I was on the wrong tab, and I couldn't actually see anything that my producer was telling me, uh, which this whole thing just all falls to uh, falls to you-know-what if I don't actually listen to the producer. But the inflation numbers this morning, not particularly surprising, but it's always good to be able to quantify these things. Uh, we have an 8.1% increase in inflation across the board. This is is a 39-year high. So it's been nearly four decades since the cost of goods has shot up annually, year over year, so month over month, year to year rather, as much as it has here. Now these come from the latest Statistics Canada data, which show that gasoline was the biggest contributing factor. Not actually food. The grocery store thing hasn't been as bad this month, but gasoline has been the contributor. Now this is significant Because gasoline is one of the few areas where government is directly, directly driving up the costs through the carbon tax. Remember, the government has put up the price of gasoline, home heating, other things as well, consistently and continuously, including as recently as April. So we're now in July, three months after that latest gas tax increase. And the federal government has been unrepentant on this. They've been completely fine with the idea of charging consumers more for gasoline. And when gasoline prices are going up, everything else goes up. Because it means that anything that you want shipped has to have gotten there by gasoline or diesel. But you know what I mean? The the costs are the same. And when you look at the broader implications of this, anytime you want to go somewhere, your family vacation's more expensive. If you want to take a plane somewhere, heaven forbid, that's going to cost more. So the airlines have to pass that along. And, you know, things like, it was funny, someone mentioned to me the other day that they were really bored. And they used to, when they were bored, just get in the car and go for a drive. And this person said to me that they can't even afford to just go for an aimless drive around anymore 
or they can't justify doing it because of the cost of gasoline. And that was actually quite a sobering statement for someone to say that, you know, even just something they could do to clear their head, just get in the car and go, is now something that has to be a cost-based calculation. So that is the, I think, big question here that all of us are going to have to contend with. And I don't know the answer to it. I, I truly don't. Because right now you've got a government that just doesn't care. A government that absolutely, absolutely does not care. A government that's going to continue to be more and more punitive, put more costs on consumers. And a government that is not interested in doing anything right now other than campaigning. Justin Trudeau is in campaign mode. He's been, he's got, the, I don't know if you can see it there, he's got the new haircut that uh, <laughs> I, I think the best meme explanation I saw is that maybe he accidentally froze his barber's bank account and this is his barber's grand revenge. But you've got a, a prime minister that right now is doing the summer campaign thing. Now this is actually stoking fear. Stoking fear that we are going to be headed into a fall election. Now, I think this rumor first emerged in an article in the Hill Times that uh, came about by, you know, citing quote unquote insiders. This would be about a year after the last election we had in, in September. And I, to be fair, let me say I don't believe we are headed towards an election. I really don't. I don't believe we're headed towards an election. I believe it's possible. I don't think it's probable. But what I find interesting is the conservatives taking this position. Now, they deleted the tweet, but I want you to see what they had up there at first because the Conservative Party of Canada tweeted basically its claim that it doesn't want an election. They say that, you know, Justin Trudeau should be focused on helping Canadians. Canadians don't want a fall election. If you're the official opposition, if you're the party whose job it is to call out the government, it's not exactly a convincing or compelling message to say, we think that the liberals are doing a bang up job right now. The liberals should continue being in government. The liberals should continue running things. We don't think Canadians should have to vote them out or we don't think Canadians will vote them out. We don't think Canadians are actually going to choose us over them. So I think that might be why they ended up deleting that tweet because they realized that it was undermining their own confidence in themselves when they share that. But I'm looking right now at the inflation numbers alone. The cost of living is going to get worse. It's going to continue to get worse. People are going to start hurting more and more. The finances of individual consumers, of businesses, are going to be continuing to drive down. And what's going to happen is if the Liberals wait till 2025 or 2023, then what's happening is we are going to see a huge, huge problem for the Liberals. Because you can't win an election in a recession. You can't win an election if people are, are truly hurting even more than they are now. So one uh, Politico I was talking to had suggested that maybe the case for Justin Trudeau is to just slip an election in under the radar now. Just slip it in. And by doing so, they managed to get reelected and renew the term, get another four years in power before things get really bad, before things get really bad, before it becomes so untenable that no government could expect to be reelected. That would be the theory, I think, if Justin Trudeau decides to proceed right now with an election. So when we see this, I mean, the inflation problem, and I've been talking about this deliberately in my interviews with conservative leadership candidates, because the inflation problem is one that we shouldn't need the statistics to tell us 
about. It's one that people see when they're filling up their gas tank. It's one that people see when they're at the grocery store. It's one that people see. And people were seeing before politicians even recognized it. Back when uh, Tiff Macklem and the Bank of uh, Canada were all saying, ah, this is just transitory. It's just gonna, it's a little thing. It'll pop up. You'll hardly notice it before long. And Canadians were struggling. Canadians are struggling. I mean, even over the last five, six years, you'd always see those stories every now and then where someone says uh, or a, a study reveals that whatever percentage of Canadians are less than $200 away from insolvency in any given month. And, and these things are gut-wrenching because people are already strained. People don't have a buffer. And even before we had these record inflation levels, people were already hurting to such an extent that all it would take is one car repair, one dental emergency, and they cannot afford to meet their bills. They're going into debt, which as we know, balloons and compounds over time. So this is not something that can be taken lightly. And, and you can talk about the fact this is a global issue. The UK, I mean, we're at 8.1%. The UK's numbers had them, I think it was at 9.4% this week. So other countries are dealing with this. But I, I don't think you should allow any government leader to look at uh, this situation and look around the world and say, ah, but it's an everywhere thing. It's not our problem. Because what governments can do is avoid putting more burdens on consumers. The Canadian government can say, all right, well, maybe we can't control some of these things, but what we can control is the carbon tax. If you're paying a buck 78 a liter, we can at least say we're not going to add the four, five, six cents to get to that point, which is the problem they have now. So it, it's despicable to me that we have Canadians in worse and worse position right now economically. And Justin, I don't think about monetary policy, Trudeau, is still making it worse, not just by inaction, but specific concrete actions that drive up the cost of living. Because when you drive up the cost of fuel, you've driven up the cost of everything. And at a certain point, this is going to be driving more Canadians and more Canadian businesses into insolvency. Uh, before we bring in Roman Babber to this discussion, the Conservative leadership candidate, I, I want to talk about this story that came out yesterday, which I didn't even know, by the way, legitimately, I did not even know this was a thing until the story came out. So Indigo, which is Canada's largest uh, book retailer slash uh, sex toy emporium for reasons unclear, has decided for whatever reason, it is not going to carry my book on its store shelves. So my book, which I've been, uh, you've been very patient to put up with it over my shoulder there, uh, The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World. It's a, a piece of journalism that goes behind the scenes of the convoy and talks to some of the key organizers and players and participants and, and does it in a way that actually brings new information up. So I, I'm very proud of this book. I wrote it in a very short time frame, but it's been a, a tremendous success, which I'm so grateful for. We were uh, number one in the Globe and Mail bestsellers list. We are number one in the Toronto Star bestsellers list. At last look, and let me just look right now to give you the most up-to-date information, it is number three overall on Amazon. So it's number one in politics, but number three overall behind Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. And it's unfortunate. I was thinking of putting a crawdad in my book. So we might've been number one. And number two is a, a chiclet book called The Summer I Turned Pretty. And I assure you, I have not turned pretty in any summer. So that was not a book I was able to beat. But we're number three overall on Amazon. And so it's not like this is just something that I self-published that I just shoved out the door. Like, it's actually moving copies. People are interested in it. I've heard from audience members that have said they, they have got copies or they've got them on the way. 
And I'm, I'm very, again, truly, truly grateful for this. So I don't take an entitlement approach here. I don't think Indigo has a requirement to carry my book. It's a private company. It can do whatever it wants. Heather Reisman, I've met, she can do what she wants. But I find it confusing. I find it confusing given books they sell of a range of topics, given all the dildos and vibrators and notebooks and pillows and coffee mugs they sell. Like it still is ostensibly a bookstore. They still have a book section there. And I think like half of their business is books. So I, I, it's, I was disappointing actually, because I grew up going to chapters and buying books from chapters and I always loved it there. So it's, it's disappointing. The store doesn't believe that my book is worthy of, of being on its hallowed shelves or, or whatever the case is. But uh, the National posted a story about this. And interestingly enough, like all yesterday afternoon and evening, Boycott Indigo was trending on Twitter. And I found this fascinating. Now, I have not encouraged any boycott. Like I said, I, my whole thing is I just want to be able to tell people who are interested in getting the book where they can get it from. So uh, right now, I, I've been encouraging people to check out Amazon. I've been encouraging people to go directly to the publisher's website, which is Sutherland House Books, or to call up your local bookstore and, and see if they carry it, even if Chapters and Indigo and, and Kohl's are, are not. But all of this I, I find just so baffling, and, and people are so distrustful of corporations that decide, especially in this era of wokeness, corporations that decide to make these political values judgments that really don't make sense, because I would never judge Indigo for having some anti-convoy book written by some CBC reporter. I'd be like, okay, whatever, it's a bookstore. The whole point of a bookstore is that it's your gateway to learning, not just to learning about uh, specific stories, but learning about different viewpoints and different perspectives. And I, I think that's been like a library. I mean, one of the most tremendous things of literature is that I do not, I do not extrapolate from any book on a bookstore shelf the values or views of the bookstore itself. But once you start curating, once you get involved and say, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more of an active participant than just a platform then all of a sudden everyone expects that of you. Because now that Indigo has basically admitted that, you know, we pick and choose based on things that aren't business decisions, what books to carry, anytime they carry something now that the woke mob doesn't like, they're going to get that mob jumping down them uh, just to demand that they get rid of it. And they've now surrendered their ability to fall behind what I think is a very defensible position, which is just saying, eh, you know what, we just have everything. We have all books of, of all stripes and all persuasions. So I, it's fascinating to me that this book can be a number one bestseller on the two most authoritative bestsellers lists in the country, the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestsellers list. But Canada's bookstore chain of record won't want to put it on their shelves. And by the way, I've, I've not fielded any interview requests from CBC or Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail or anything like that. I, I'd happily speak about this. And I, I know this sounds very self-aggrandizing and self-promoting. It, it, it isn't that at all. I, I told this story because I thought the story needed to be told. And I, I'm more bothered that they don't seem to think this story has a place. So that line that Indigo gave in that National Post article is that, you know, they make their decisions based on a deep knowledge of the Indigo customer. So what they're saying is, uh, you know, we don't believe these convoy books are, are exactly our type of people. That That's basically what they're saying, that the people that would read a convoy book are not the kind that would shop at Indigo. And well, certainly not now. In any case, I want to move away from me there to uh, Roman Babber, who uh, we've spoken to on the show a number of times 
Times, including our in-depth conservative leadership series interview with him a few weeks back. And he has now unveiled his platform in the conservative leadership race, and he joins me live on the program now. I should say briefly, though, on the Indigo thing, you are, are the only leadership candidate, Roman, to have come to my defense on this. Uh, you tweeted yesterday at, at Heather Reisman, which I, I thought was very kind of you. So thank you, and good to talk to you again. Did I miss your segment about the mainstream media and the treatment that conservative-leaning Canadians receive from the mainstream media? Am I late for that? Well, it's an evergreen segment, so we can certainly go down that road if you'd like. Yeah, because you, you've gone through this yourself, I mean, throughout the whole COVID uh, issue, where, uh, you know, you as someone standing up for these things like freedom, which shouldn't exactly be marginal views, are treated a, as marginalized by the media. Look, uh, it's it's regretful. One of the, I, I consistently say that we can't restore democracy in Canada, and, and I'm of the view that Canada's democracy is being eroded without free and independent media. And I think that we have a component of not just the media being ideologically driven in that it sees itself, I guess, uh, a player, a stakeholder that, that wants to move events and, and world history instead of being uh, an independent observer that, that scores history. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's lack of media independence that is driving a lot of what we're seeing and certainly a lot of the treatment that myself and some of uh, my friends in this race are receiving. Um, how can media be independent when the government signs its paycheck? And I, I don't think it can be. Um, and, and that's why I'm, I'm very committed to ending all financial ties between government and media. Uh, with respect to, to your book, you know, I, I did tweet yesterday saying um, it's, it's ironic because for all that the media tried to do to demonize this movement on February 18th, we saw as the government was breaking the rule of law with an unlawful declaration of emergencies, the protesters remained peaceful, right? Everything that Justin Trudeau and the media tried to say about this movement proven to be false. Uh, this is a movement that galvanized a nation. It, it set um, a message around the world. It enabled about a, a third, maybe close to 45% of Canadians to finally express themselves on the issue of mandates. It was very, very popular around the country. At the very least, you might disagree with the movement, but Indigo should certainly provide us some shell space. A lot of Canadians take interest in it. Well, that's very kind of you, Roman. I want to talk to you about your platform, though, today, because you came out with a commitment to Canada here. And I mean, the four key planks and what we can drill into them in a bit more detail here. Defend Canada's democracy, restore Canadian opportunity, make Canada a natural resources superpower and reinstate trust in government. Let, let's start in on trust in government, because I think trust in institutions in general is right now under threat, whether it's the media, as we've been talking about, or, or government. But how do you do that? Because I mean, I think the convoy was a reflection of how much distrust there is. And I'd say a lot of that for good reason towards government. I mean, this is not something you can rebuild overnight. Absolutely. Look, Canadians, and, and that includes conservatives, are experiencing uh, a deficit, a, a material deficit of trust in government. And it starts with our Conservative Party. I'm of the view that uh, the Conservative Party did not stand up for Canadians in the last couple of years against our cancer screenings missed, against our surgeries being delayed, against the mental health pandemic that's being perpetuated in us. So first as a party, we have to ensure Canadians that we're going to say what we believe and, and do what we believe is right, even when it's unpopular. I think that many Canadians legitimately have questions about the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, some of the uh, money that, that seems to be unaccounted for, some of the decisions that were made, was there any self-dealing? 
was any of it politically motivated. So I will propose a judicial inquiry into the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic with no stone unturned. I also uh, think that a lot of uh, folks rightfully believe that um, lobbyists uh, have a, a very big role in how governments are run. And I would uh, propose to look at the Lobbying Act. Uh, and, and for our friends in the West that propose to, propose to look at the representation formula, I, I don't think it's right that you have some electoral districts in Edmonton and Calgary with 150,000 people and in other places around the country with 30 to 70,000. And finally, most importantly, we've got to restore the rule of law back to the government in Ottawa, something that is desperately lacking. We've seen Justin Trudeau. I mean, one of the most, uh, the old line in news is that, you know, when a, a dog bites a man, that's not news. When a man bites a dog, that's news. Uh, Justin Trudeau getting strung up on ethics violations is now dog bites man. Like it, it's happened so often, it's barely news now. But I think the real story of all of these has been that whenever it's happened, the punishment, if you can even call it that, is virtually non-existent. There'll be a an admonishment from the ethics commissioner, maybe a $500 fine, would one of your reforms to restore trust involve actually putting real penalties behind uh, members of parliament and uh, the prime minister, cabinet ministers that violate ethics laws? Got to be got to be thoughtful as you propose that because you have to look at intent. Uh, if you're going to, and and this is me not not having thought about this enough, just just thinking in in, in terms of my past life as a lawyer. If you're going to impose very strict penalties, you've got to look at intent. And that means that you also have to enable the ethics commissioner to do a very thorough investigation with subpoena powers and so on and so forth. And of course, then you have due process. But what, what I'm talking about beyond the ethics violations is that we're seeing now this cooperation between government agencies and government that, that makes me very nervous. In particular, Commissioner Lucky, uh, the, the top the top police officer in the country sought to influence the conduct of an of a very serious investigation. It's one of the greatest, you know, tragedies uh, in our nation's history, and and she sought to do the the prime minister a favor, and and when the police is doing the political class a favor, we're one step away, if not already, a banana republic, and 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 this is something that I'm going to look at very very carefully at delineating the lines, the appropriate lines between law enforcement and, and government, we've got to start with that. And, and of course, uh, you know, when you have crown ministers misrepresenting evidence on which they have uh, invoked the Emergencies Act, the, the successor of the measure, uh, Wars Act, um, that is something that I, I don't think you, you can put back in the bag. I propose that we need to have a serious look at this and ministers need to be held accountable. Now, when you say held accountable, what do you mean? Do you mean voted out of office? Or are you talking about some form of a sanction? Or are you suggesting that crime laws have actually been broken here? I'm not going to allege that Marco Mendocino broke the law. What is clear is that he, he did tell a parliamentary committee that there was advice given by law enforcement that um, the government should invoke the War Measures Act. Uh, sorry, the, the Emergencies Act in order to deal with the protesters. And clearly that, uh, at least my understanding in the media, did not uh, turn out to be true. And in fact, all three agencies, Ottawa, the OPP, and the RCMP denied that. Uh, at the very least, we'd like to see what's called ministerial accountability, whereby the Prime Minister would remove the minister or the minister would voluntarily resign. It's just that, regretfully, decency has left Parliament and our political system. 
And beyond that, when, when it came to ministerial accountability, then the last line of defense uh, of um, ministerial accountability would be the news media that would continue to hammer and hold the minister responsible, but that is not happening regretfully. So um, I'm, I'm of the view that, uh, of course, there should be ministerial accountability, but if there isn't, uh, our opportunity to hold them accountable is on elections day, something that the conservative party seems to be unable to do because we just fail to unite in spite of ourselves. I was mentioning just before you joined the program, there was a tweet from the Conservative Party of Canada uh, just the other day about effectively saying we don't want an election. I think we, we can even put it up on the screen there. It was, the Trudeau Liberals should be focused on helping Canadians. Canadians don't want a fall election. Now, when I saw that tweet, I mean, my view is that Canadians may not want a fall election, but it, it's incumbent upon the opposition to oppose. And I, I think it was very odd messaging, in fact, that, you know, on one hand to say the Liberals are doing such a terrible job, and on the other hand, Canadians shouldn't have the opportunity to get rid of them. What was your view on, on that? And in general, the idea of, uh, you know, going into a potential fall election if you were the Conservative leader come September? I quote tweeted that tweet, and I said, what? No, uh, we can't afford another day of Justin Trudeau in office. Uh, let's get this leadership done and, and go forward with the fall election. Uh, I'm ready, uh, Andrew, and I think that our party, I expect our party to unite very, very quickly uh, after the leadership election. We cannot afford another day of this government and and the democratic erosion that we're seeing, uh, economic opportunity being eroded. Of course, we're potentially uh, looking at a record 40-year high in inflation. Life in Canada is becoming unaffordable. Uh, I propose that we move as quickly as possible. If Justin Trudeau wants to ask Canadians for another mandate or to give us an opportunity to ask for a mandate, bring it on as quickly as we can. That's my view. Your plan right now for the leadership, I'll take a step back here. One of the, the big frustrations we saw in 2020 is that Aaron O'Toole ran on this really red meat, true blue conservative leadership platform, which then was watered down considerably in 2021 when he sought the general election votes. A similar thing happened with Andrew Scheer in 2017. We saw a lot of things in the leadership that didn't really translate to the election. I mean, the one thing, if we did have a fall election, you wouldn't really have time to uh, do much backtracking, not that that would be what, what you'd want to do anyway. But are you prepared to stand on every policy that you're putting forward in your platform here in the leadership race in a general election as well? 100%. Andrew, I will not say anything to you that I will not repeat in the mainstream media, be it in the leadership or be it in the general election. That is precisely what uh, I think harms us during every election and after every leadership. We have this tendency where the leader runs to the right during the leadership and then pivots to the center, in which case the, the Conservative Party faithful think that he misrepresented herself or himself. And, and the Liberals are laughing at us for, for being wafflers and, and flip-floppers. No, we cannot afford that to happen. And, and one area where I particularly look forward, other than, of course, Canada's democracy, uh, passports and mandates, something that I'll make a, a thing of the past, I'll amend the Canada Health Act to make sure that we don't discriminate against anyone ever again because of their medical choice. Uh, and, and, of course, beyond uh, my commitment to restore freedom of speech, I am very, very bullish on Canada's natural resources and I would propose to make Canada a natural resources superpower. And that means that we cannot be afraid to take our case to Canadians during the general election and say that we oppose the carbon tax. I do not believe, in all honesty, that taxing Sally tech 10 bucks at the pump is going to change the global climate. I don't think that many people believe that. I don't think that many European countries remain committed to the Paris Accord 
which of course misses the point because it doesn't touch the world's biggest polluters. And so I think it's an, it's against Canada's national interest and I'll pull us out of the Paris Accord. I'm, I think that um, our natural resources are a blessing. I'm not going to let oil and gas be canceled. We need to rethink and, and legislate and negotiate the construction of all three major pipelines. I think our, our friends to the south might be ready for an XL Keystone given how uh, upset Americans are at gas prices. We need to clarify the duty to consult and rebalance some uh, timelines. We, we need to encourage refinery capacity, mining. We need to do it all. Uh, that's the only way we're going to climb out of the fiscal hole uh, that we're in. And, and I look forward to taking this case directly to Canadians. I think the tide on, on natural resources uh, is, is changing our way. When you talk about the refining capacity, this is not something we hear a lot of in Canada. In fact, a lot of people just insist that we don't need to increase refining capacity, which I, I don't buy into. But what would you do when you say encourage? Is it just saying as a potential prime minister, yes, we need to do this? Or are you talking about uh, you know tax credits to companies? What does that actual process look like to you? You've got to simplify the regulatory regime. That's number one. Number two, you need to create a culture whereby uh, capital and investment is not worried about the regulatory uncertainty or the political uncertainty that would ensue in, in something to that effect. And, and finally, we have, to, we have to have a conversation about pipelines again. And we have to hold those that propose to stand in for the environment accountable to their world, to their word. I, I think if, if anyone's passionate about the environment, they should be against transporting uh, natural resources by train, at least those that don't need to be by train, and instead use pipelines. Pipelines are a lot safer than trains, right? We saw the disaster in Lac Magnetique a couple of uh, about a decade ago. So uh, pedal to the metal on all of that, Andrew, and that starts with a culture change, with a certainty for investors, and with regulatory reform. Another topic that doesn't typically rank high on the list of, of sexiness of political topics, but you have it in your platform under Restoring Canadian Opportunity, reducing barriers and encouraging competition in, in federally regulated industries. So my hope would be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about airlines, you're talking about telecommunications, you're talking about uh, rail transport, are you basically talking about everything there? If there's anything we learned from the Rogers outage a couple of weeks ago is, is how terrible our federally regulated industries are. Canadians pay some of the highest prices for cell phones and internet access. And, and that shouldn't be the case. And, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, when mobile tried to come into Canada and, and compete, and I, I think they've been around for about five or seven years. And, and when they left, the CEO said that Canada is one of the worst places on earth to do business. And, and that is shameful. And, and that should not be the case. So uh, I propose that we stop protecting these antiquated institutions. I've had it with Air Canada, okay? <laughs> Personally and nationally. So, so I, I propose that we invite foreign carriers. Uh, you know, there's no reason why if, if um, let's say Lufthansa uh, lands in, in Toronto and then proceeds to Vancouver, why a Canadian cannot hitch on a ride on Lufthansa from Toronto to Vancouver? That will be good for the consumer. It will be good for Canadians. Same with telecom and, and same with banking. We have four and a half national banks and, and uh, sorry, four and a half major banks. And, and I don't understand why 
why that needs to be the case. Competition is good for consumer. It's good for Canadians. We need to do, to free up all those industries and, and encourage competition. Let people work. Because I know you did mention earlier on that you want to reform lobbying. Do you view all of these things as being a, a victim or a byproduct of lobbying? You know, all of these companies have good, strong lobbyists. and or, or do you think there's something else there? Because the government will typically defend these things by talking about really... I'd say esoteric Canadian qualities and the fact that, oh, no, 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 we have to protect our Canadian culture because apparently Air Canada and Via Rail are the Canadian culture or something like that. But like, I'm just curious where you think this problem comes from because it's, it should be a no-brainer. I mean, no Canadian, no Canadian is happy with their choices for cell phone providers. Like, zero especially any Canadian that has a friend or a family in Europe and that's getting, you know, twice the data for a third of the price. So where is this coming from? I think our, our prudence, our unwillingness to innovate, uh, the fact that um, we, we seem to somehow associate uh, some of these institutions with a hint of national pride, um, but, but certainly lobbying plays a part. And look, on, on this issue, um, Prime Minister Harper actually tried to reform uh, some of the lobbying in this country, and, and he made some some good strides. And, and I would propose that we started. He, he also, by the way, just tried to let Verizon come in, which ended up just exploding Canada. Yeah. Uh, at the very least, we see a, a very tight um, relationship between interest stakeholders and government. Obviously, it's, it's conjointed by lobbyists. And essentially, uh, all they do is they offer access um, for for payment uh, and and my view is you can take a few concrete steps for instance you should not have a, a government public a public servant or, or a staffer leave it leave government after half a year or a year and join the lobbying firm and start lobbying their friends we we need to have some some arm's length between insiders within government and then subsequently lobbyists that are uh, making money on this government uh, I'm, I'm a little tired of the revolving door but most importantly, uh, I, I think that we, we need to think about our relationship with the regulators and, and specifically the industry, uh, whether it's telecom or whether it's securities regulation, pharmaceutical regulations. Um, I'm, I'm concerned uh, about the role some of them now play within government. Uh, I'm afraid that instead of regulating uh, industry, uh, holding it to account, they're, they're busy, they're more busy uh, doing government relations with government. I think we need to rethink some of that uh, before Canadians lose any further trust in the way we deal with stakeholders. Former Ontario MPP Roman Babber, you can catch at his website, joinroman.ca, his new commitment to Canada, his platform that's coming out, and we'll extend this invitation to all candidates as they have uh, fully, uh, Im Im I guess, uh, extrapolated uh, platforms. Uh, Roman, it is always good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. Send me a copy of your book, signed, please. <laughs> All right. Well, now hopefully we'll be somewhere in the same city in person. I can do a, a personal delivery there, but I appreciate that very much. Good to see you, Andrew. All right. Thanks very much. That is Roman Babber. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already seen it, to check out my sit down with him about 30 minutes long in our conservative leadership series. Uh, just I think it came out two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And we've done those with five of the six candidates so far. The last one, Leslin Lewis, will be coming out in the days ahead. And we really try to capture a lot of the themes that are in the race and in Canadian politics and in their campaigns as well. And uh, those have been getting very good feedback. So thank you very much to that. And yeah, like I said, 
said, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't just, uh, you know, kiss, kissing his rear end there. Roman, I was very, very humbled when he uh, tweeted that National Post story about uh, my book in Indigo and tagged Heather Reisman in it. Now, I, have to, I don't know if Heather Reisman has responded to him yet, but uh, we, will, <laughs> we will follow that one. Uh, but truly, I have to say, and I, I know it comes across as self-promotional, but it's really a thank you. I mean, when, when I wrote this book very quickly, I didn't know it would uh, succeed, and I didn't know that people would be as interested in they were. I, I wrote it because I wanted to read it myself. I wanted to learn about some of these things. And when it shot up to being like a bestseller, I was like, well, that's kind of great. And then I was actually looking forward to just like the little nerdy kid in me was looking forward to walking into a bookstore and seeing it on shelves. And then it was only yesterday when I learned that Indigo had make a, made a very de de deliberate decision to not put it on its shelves, which is unfortunate, but it's not stopping people from getting it. So you can order it online. You can go to Amazon. You can go to SutherlandHouseBooks.com. You can order it from Indigo online. You just won't see it on a shelf. So uh, some people have been doing the boycott thing, but whatever works for you, if you read it, let me know what you think. And as I mentioned, I'm going to do, do a Q&A at some point on this and, and take any questions you have about covering the convoy and all that fun stuff. So uh, that does it for me for today. We'll be back in a couple days time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. I understand we had uh, some technical issues early on with the stream. Uh, my apologies for those. We'll uh, get those sorted out for next time. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.